from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Uh, that's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, gravitational attraction. In addition, we'll be joined by John Lloyd and John Mitchison, who will discuss the Book of General Ignorance. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On Berkeley Grox. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Getting kind of late, isn't it? <laughs> well, late uh, on what time scale? <laughs> I mean, we've got plenty of time left before the heat death of the universe. Party's still early. <laughs> the night is young, the right? The party's just starting, as far as the universe is concerned. <laughs> Whether humans will be there at the end, that's the question. Right. It'll go on. <laughs> okay, so while humans and all the animals are still around, there's always that big question, right? The big question of the Big Bang? Okay, in a sense. In fact... What scientists have done is if they pair up roaches, flies, fish, ducks, and mice, if they pair them up with less than ideal mates, it turns out there is a bigger bang. The laws of attraction in the animal kingdom. Yes, and apparently by doing so, it boosted their offspring's chance of success because what happens is that they produce more eggs and ejaculate more sperm. Uh, I would imagine if you paired up a roach with a mouse, there wouldn't be much at all. You would hope not. Yeah. Obviously, you mean roaches with roaches and mice with mice, right? Yes. Okay. I hate to think of the human analogy here. I never took a sex ad. I might just be crushed in the process. This is one story from our favorite journal, but it turns out there's a second. So there's a prevailing notion that you know men and women claim they're looking for mates who match them in health and wealth. But an experiment carried out in Munich, somewhat analogous to a speed dating session, what the men preferred were more along the evolutionary lines where the women were attractive as an indicator for good genes. Right. Women, on the other hand, had this trade-off between a mate's quality, both the genetic and the phenotype, and his willingness to provide paternal investment. Mm-hmm. Could be good-looking, but skip out on the kids, and yeah. that's no good, right? <laughs> so, hence, you know, hence the constant episodes of Jerry Springer that I've seen. So. <laughs> Evolution in the process, right? Devolving is in the process, I'm not sure. It's both of these uh, excellent articles in our very favorite journal. I love that journal so much, I want to marry it. The, <laughs> the pre- Proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. All right, well, here's a law of attraction of a different kind. Gravity. It sucks. <laughs> It's not just a good idea, it's the law. (laughs) I'm sure you're familiar with Newton's second law, which is force equals mass times acceleration. Right. It's been thought that that this law might not hold for very small infinitesimal accelerations, that there's a slight deviation. Because you're bending space-time or something like that? (laughs) Well, it's it's not really known, right? There's some examples, apparently, that have been seen empirically where it looks like the second law might break down, and it's led to development of a scheme called Modified Newtonian Dynamics, or MOND. You know, I always get that feeling that I'm phasing into some other uh, universe out there. <laughs> Hopefully it's a, it's a much more happier universe with chocolate and marshmallows. And bunnies. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, researchers now, uh, Jens Goodlock and Steven Schlaminger, have shown using a very special pendulum that they're able to measure for accelerations as small as 0.00005 nanometers per second per second that, in fact, Newton's law still holds. Okay. Well, this is important because apparently there was a, some sort of small unexplained acceleration that the Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecraft had been experiencing. Uh-huh. And they thought it might be due to some kind of gravitational attraction at these very small intensities. But apparently it's, this rules that out, and it must be something else, they say. Okay, nothing to worry then. Well, yeah, so yeah, that was basically a story that the status quo still holds, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I like the status quo. It's perfect. Published in a recent edition of Physical Review Letters. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Rocks Science Show you're listening to. Coming up in just a few minutes, John Lloyd and John Mitchinson will join us to discuss the Book of General Ignorance. So stay tuned. to the Gronk's Science Show. Well, there are facts and then there's common knowledge. And more often than not, the two occupy vastly separate spheres of reality. Everything from who was the first American president of the United States, and it wasn't George Washington, to what is the tallest mountain in the world is examined and dissected in the Book of General Ignorance. The authors, Mr. John Lloyd and Mr. John Mitchinson, are well known to fans of British television. Mr. Lloyd is producer of Not the Nine O'Clock News, Blackadder, and Spitting Image. He earned a BAFTA Lifetime Achievement Award and is creator and producer of the hit BBC show QI. Mr. Mitchinson is a writer for QI and apparently lives in the same village and drinks in the same pub as uh, Mr. Lloyd. Mr. Lloyd, Mr. Mitchinson, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. I'm delighted to be there. Oh, yeah. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on, on the program, and I think this is really a fascinating collection of facts called from uh, your hit television show, QI. Well, the, the book kind of comes, the, the TV show, which is a, a sort of a panel show, it has a round at the end of it, each edition, which is called the General Ignorance Round, and the idea is that's where we ask questions which apparently have very obvious answers, and the guests who come up with the very obvious answers, you know, how many wives does Henry VIII have, will get minus 20 points, so... Mm-hmm it's perfectly possible for people to end up with a very large minus score and even to, even to win the whole show on a minus score. So, and it's from those, we've done five series of the show now, and it's from those that we gathered a, a lot of these questions, although also in the writing of the book we invented a fair few more as well. So how do you uh, come up with the uh, various questions that you address in the show and in the book? Well, we kind of uh, look at what's obvious. We try and think of the biggest cliches we can possibly imagine. How many moons does the world have? Who was the first president of the United States, as you said? Did Mussolini make the trains run on time? That kind of stuff. And research it to pieces until you discover that actually nearly everything you know is not true. Uh, it's a different way of learning than you learn at school, where you basically sit down and listen to what you're told. And we try and be a little bit skeptical, not cynical, a little bit open-minded about stuff and wonder whether things are exactly as we're told they are. I understand you have an interesting collection of researchers that work on the program to look at these uh, various questions. Yeah, it's an extraordinary collection of of people. We have a guy who was 
about to become an astrophysicist. We've got another guy who was a refugee from the, the city. He was a compliance officer in the city of London. We've got uh, a guy who was a, an accountant for a, a chain of pubs in, in the north of England. We've got a guy who worked at Bristol Zoo. Uh, we've got two Mandarin speakers. It, it's a very, very eclectic bunch of people. I guess we're all united by having a very, a very low boredom threshold <laughs> and uh, just a, a great enthusiasm for the sort of material that we're, we're working on, uh, squirreling away, looking well, we're, at We're all basically unemployable, Charles, anywhere else, you know. <laughs> uh, we, we, we cling together uh, on the wreckage of our lives, um, researching weird stuff just for the heck of it, and it seems to work. People seem to like it. It's not like you should be in academia. <laughs> well, it's kind of sort of important for us not to be in academia now, because what, one of the things that we feel, we're, we're generalists, we're, we're, not, we're not specialists. What we try and do is, is to move from one subject to another subject to another subject, because it seems to us that seeing the patterns and the, and the resemblances, you know, so much of academia and modern scientific research is you become absolutely knowledgeable about one tiny little sliver of uh, knowledge, whereas you, you're not really able to look. You know, it's called the Book of General Ignorance, I guess because it is general. We try to, to cover art, sciences, popular culture, but whatever people are interested in. So we use interestingness as the thing that leads us into subjects rather than a... You know, we a, we a believe kind of that un interestingness is a universal quality like beauty or proportion that actually really interesting stuff everybody cares about. The funny thing about academia is that two archaeologists will talk about archaeology till... Well, they'll argue about archaeology, won't they, let's be honest. But if you put an archaeologist and an astrophysicist together, they talk about girls. <laughs> you know, they, they do not exchange the information they have about their academic subjects, or very, very rarely, because they assume the other person won't be able to understand it. And in our little group, because we know that we're experts in very narrow areas, we have to explain what we do as if to a 12-year-old child. And so suddenly it becomes very simple, or we try to make it simple. Well, I'm still scratching my head over the whole girls issue there. <laughs> yeah, you're not alone on that one. <laughs> Topic for another show, then. Um, there's a number of uh, very interesting questions in the book, but have you found uh, something that really strikes you? How do you know something is interesting when you happen upon it? How do you know something's interesting? Well, mm -hmm. this is that's a that's a great question, and of course there is no answer. It's it's mm -hmm. almost the same as saying, how do you know something's funny? You, you just mm -hmm. know it, and it's impossible to find. And the more time you spend, I mean, there's nothing duller than listening to people, psychologists trying to explain. You know, read Freud on the joke. It's it's dull. It doesn't really it doesn't really happen. And I think the problem is that if you discover, as we have done through our work, extraordinary things that make you see the world differently, when you first time you you realise that what we call matter. And, and, and the universe is, is, is completely, you know, full of empty space. Or on a completely different tack, you know, the moment you, you first find out that most people who ever lived have been killed by the sort of the feeding habits of the female mosquito, then perspective, something in your world just changes, it alters slightly so that you, you see the world a bit differently. So interestingness, I think, is there, it's all around us, but you just have to work sometimes a little bit harder to, to find it. But when you find it, you know you found it. It's very like... How do you know what's a good tune? There's no way of saying that. Why do we like some paintings and not others? Why do you look at a landscape and say, God, that's fantastic, or a sunset? We really do not understand the whole business of shape and beauty and why it pleases us. And it seems so far to have eluded science as much as, say, the whole question of consciousness has. Isn't a lot of this just a matter of taste as well, though? Well, we think... 
there, there, there are arguments about that, but actually really interesting stuff. I can't remember whether it's in the book or not, but if you say to another person, did you know that female kangaroos have three vaginas, and people don't say, what? Uh, that can't be right. Yeah, the, the taste point is, 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 is well made, but it's, it's, it, the mystery really is, how does one comedian get you know, doing something that's very personal that makes him funny, that makes him laugh, stand in front of an audience of 10,000 people and they're all crying with laughter? How does that, there's something mysterious that happens there. You know, he's, he's plugging into something that unites all those people. And I guess that's all we're trying to do. Sometimes it works better than others, but that's, if we didn't think that this stuff was of, of general interest, which, uh, we wouldn't bother with it. But the main thing, what drives us is our own taste, our own sense of what's interesting. And the whole of it is based on, well, if we're finding it interesting, I'm sure some other people will. And thus far, it seems to work. It's in all the great philosophy, to thine own self be true. And as Socrates said on his deathbed, know thyself. If, if you really sincerely know what you like, it has an extraordinary connection with what everyone else likes. Where we start to go wrong in taste is where we try to guess what other people want. And I think our take on this would be the great art, great music, even if it takes a long time to reach public consciousness, it always has a kind of universality about it. Well, like great science does, you know, when great scientific breakthroughs happen, people recognize them immediately. It doesn't take a hundred years for relativity or the heliocentric solar system to take root. It, it comes very fast. Darwin was the same. I mean, the idea that Darwin was widely ridiculed when he came up with the theory of evolution is not so. It was immediately recognized to be something truthful. Do you feel after compiling all these questions, uh, you, your sense of what's interesting has become a little more acute? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a funny thing. It's, it's like anything, I suppose, if you do it more often, you, you get a sense for which door's worth opening and which, which lead is, you know, that you can, uh, yeah, you, I suppose there's a smell, isn't there? You, there's something in there. You start to look in areas that you think might just be able to uncover or something that doesn't just quite fit. You know, it's very it, like uh, a geology, Charles. A geologist goes into a, an empty landscape and they think, oh, that hill formation that's a, has a familiar ring to it, that depression in the ground, that looks promising. And you get a feel for that kind of stuff, of where we're wasting time and where we're on some sort of track. The book is filled with all sorts of uh, interesting uh, facts here. I'm curious, were there any that really just jumped out at you, that uh, jaw-dropping? Um, there's quite a lot that are jaw-dropping, I suppose. I mean, I'll do a funny one because it, it's a brilliant story, and once, once you've heard the story, you never forget it, which is that the great story about the chicken that lived for two years without its head, mm. right? which is obviously, it's a freak. It was a one-off. Uh, the guy who, who chopped the head off the chicken was intending to kill it, but he left just enough of the brainstem on the neck for the chicken to be able to hop off the block. Mm. And then it lived for two years after that and became a celebrity. I mean, as you'd imagine, a chicken without a head. He fed it, you know, religiously every day with an eyedropper and corn and water, and, and it went on the cover of Time magazine. It was in, down in Colorado. It, was, uh, it became known as Mike the Headless Chicken, and it was on the cover of Time and Life magazines and then died in a rather kind of rock-and-roll death in a motel room in Arizona, having choked to death. But, I mean, I, I remember the, the covering that and feeling against all your instincts that it couldn't possibly be true and then realizing, you know, it's just, it was a, it was a one-off, such a, in a way, sort of life-enhancing, the whole story of how this, this thing managed to live with it, just enough of its head that it needed to perform those fairly basic chicken activities. That's a great story. 
listen, my favourite one is how many sheep were there on Noah's Ark. <laughs> uh, you know, from little child, you, you learn that the animals went in two by two on Noah's Ark, mm. uh, and so there are two lions, two tigers, two elephants, and so on. But how many sheep are there? The answer is 14. And if you read Genesis 7, 2, uh, there it is, all in, in black and white, that God said to Noah, take unto thee of every clean animal seven male and his female because the idea is there are two kinds of animal in Judaic law they're the ones you can eat, clean animals, goats sheep, um, cows that kind of stuff and the ones you can't eat lapwings, chameleons zebras the, the unclean animals were taken in two by two and the clean animals seven by seven which makes sense, you know, they had something to eat while they were out on the briny for 49 I loved finding out, you know, that the biggest, extraordinary fact that the biggest living thing in the world is, is not a blue whale, but a, a very large mushroom in Oregon, you know, that's been growing for thousands of years and is now covers 2,000 acres. It's one single living organism that sort of its roots grow under the soil, which just makes you, again, think slightly differently about how do we define life and living things. It's an extraordinary fact. I love the idea that Columbus went to his grave saying, I didn't discover America. You know, don't say that I discovered America. I discovered India. Um, and, you know, the, the yeah, idea that... say to his crew, anyone who says we discovered anything other than India will have their tongues cut out. <laughs> that cross about it. And then, you know, he spends the rest of history as the man who discovered the, uh, the new world. So he did. He never thought the world was flat. He thought it was pear-shaped. I mean, And very small, much smaller than it was, which is why he thought yeah. he discovered India. Uh, well, the one that sort of amused me was the fact that the largest man-made structure is not, in fact, the Great Wall of China. Two I find this is a very popular fact. Yeah. Uh, the Great Wall of China also famously cannot be seen from the moon. No, nothing, no man-made artifact can be seen from the moon. It's a quarter of a million miles away. You can barely make out the continents, let alone any roads or walls. But uh, the, the largest man-made structure, according to our research at any rate, is the fresh kills garbage dump on Staten Island, New York, which is absolutely huge. At one point, it was 80 feet taller than the Statue of Liberty. What a lot of garbage that was. <laughs> <laughs> Although one of the contestants on the show in the UK suggested Holland as, as an alternative, because you know, it was dug out of the sea. How do you think these uh, common knowledge facts just get perpetuated? Oh, I, I think it's it's like all these things. There's a, there's a game that I think is called Telephone in, in, the, in the US, which is one person whispers to another person, whispers to another person. It sort of gets passed down, and we, we're rewarded at school not by the quality of the questions we ask, but by our ability to sort of to repeat that great phrase, education being mm -hmm. the, the professor being reproduced in the notebooks of the students without passing through the minds of either. You know, we're rewarded for obeying authority and repeating authority rather than challenging it. And I think we just, you know, it's just a, a, a laziness. We take it as read. We, somebody tells us something, we think, yeah, that, okay, that's, that's obviously true. And yet, you know, if you think about that moon fact, how many of us have seen pictures of the, the Earth from space, from the moon? It's perfectly obvious you can't see the Great Wall of China, but with somehow, because somebody tells us, we just go along with it. The Internet, the best example of this, facts get, so-called facts get lodged on the Internet and they just get repeated ad infinitum. And I think, you yeah, know, the more often you hear something... The people in, in history who went on asking questions when it was almost illegal to ask them. And dangerous. Galileo was thrown out of Pisa University for asking questions that his teachers couldn't answer. Edison was thrown out of school aged seven after three months and told he was retarded. Einstein was dyslexic, you know, all these guys that they went on asking questions, they're just irritating. And you find that in school today. Kids who ask questions, 
They are not geniuses. They're annoying. I guess the BBC must be a little more conducive to that then, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, what we the real point is we're not here to, to tell people that they're stupid or that they're wrong. We're here to encourage people to ask more questions and to, to you know, to join in the fun of it, the enjoyment of it. Humor is is very important part of, of, of the show because it, I think people's minds work better when they're in play mode. One of the facts in the book that you'll discover is that work is three times more dangerous than war. More pe people are more likely to die, three times more likely to die at work than they are in a war. It's a, in that sort of relaxed play mode that all those creative connections get made, and, and you know that's that's what we're interested in. We're not, you know, the ignorant the ones. Play mode's interesting. There was a case in Norway recently where. Uh, a kid fell off an adventure playground and was killed. And in Britain, what would have happened was that all playgrounds would have been closed all over the country and made illegal. In Norway, they took the view that it was more important that children learn to be brave than that the occasional accident happened. And so they kept the playgrounds open. And that adventurous spirit, that kind of slightly cantankerous uh, looking at things in a different way, we think should be encouraged. It's very important. There's a sort of similar incident that happened here in the the states. The governor of Minnesota said, "Well, you can't legislate against stupidity, really." So. <laughs> well, absolutely, absolutely. But it's interesting. It's interesting that uh, you know, there's a British book I know is doing very well in America, the Dangerous Book for Boys, and it's sort of encouraging, basically just encouraging children to to play in that way that is creative, to, to do things and make things and build things. I mean, I think, I think there's a huge appetite for that instead of just sitting like couch potatoes, passively consuming television. Well, so your, your hit show uh, is QI. It hasn't mm -hmm. been shown here in the States. Is there any plans to bring it over to the States? Well, we'd like to see it over, over in the States. Great fans of the States and go there often. And, but the culture's got to a point where you've got all these gatekeepers who think that people, in, in the days when the Constitution was formed, the people was a great thing. It was an important thing and the thing that we all stood for. And now the people are kind of moronic. They're considered to be moronic and they, they're just like reality television and stupid things and we don't agree with that. So we have to get past gatekeepers who think that their audiences are stupider than we do. Hmm. And that's kind of tricky. It's tricky in Britain too. Hmm. We're only slightly out of time but uh, do you have any final words on the book and the whole issue of general ignorance? Um, we love well, your show, I think... Charles. That's all we want to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. Uh, well, Mr. Lloyd, Mr. Richardson, I do want to thank you very much uh, for talking to us about the book of General Ignorance. Oh, fantastic. Okay. And you were just listening to John Lloyd and John Mitchison discussing the book of General Ignorance. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, we'll have the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. I know I'd stand in line until you think you have the time to spend an evening with me. Someplace to dance, I know that there's a chance you won't be leaving with me. And afterwards, we drop into a quiet little place and have a drink or two. And then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like I love. We're ready to play our game. It's the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, ignorant or erudite. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're ignorant or erudite. Are you ready to play our game? Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, is it really Deep Blue? 
<laughs> so it's out of work after the chess thing in a blue or so. We we heard it was used in, by some travel company to to book book people's seats. <laughs> it has a lot of duties lately. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. Here we go. Person number one, ignorant or erudite, famed soccer star David Beckham. I think we'd have to say ignorant. I'm really sorry. Uh, there's nowhere to go on that one. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's too bad. Is it a nice boy, but definitely ignorant. <laughs> Is it because he decided to come uh, stateside to play? That, that, I think that's more just straightforward kind of venal, isn't it, rather than anything else? Or <laughs> I mean, uh, well, maybe it's just uxorious. I think that's a, it's because he's trying to please his wife. Yeah. Also, he's a bit of a weed. I'm sorry. I, I, I shouldn't say that, but he does seem to be. It's a matter of football of ankles these days, you know. Seems <laughs> to work. All right. Well, person number two, uh, Sharon Osbourne. I think she has. I mean, is low cunning? Does that does that make her erudite? I don't know. We'll... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it might be a form. Low erudition. <laughs> She's kind of smart, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, think, I, I think, think that too. I think I'm, I'll put it firmly on the erudite side then. I go for that. All right. Uh, number three is Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling. Oh, she's definitely, she's on my erudite list. That's a cool thing. She's done, uh, she's done an amazing thing. Reinvents a genre, and, and that is a, it's a wonderful insight, isn't it, that? I mean, I remember when the first Harry Potter book came out, long before it was famous, and we used to read it to our kids in the car and just think, this is fantastic. I got so excited, I actually rang out the agent and said, I can direct this movie. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry, it's already gone. <laughs> uh, all right, number four is your new Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. Well, listen, I met Gordon Brown the other day and I liked him. I yeah. thought, this is a very QI thing. You know, the press here in Britain portray him as gloomy, boring, um, uninteresting, and I thought he was a great guy. He seemed to be genuinely interested in what other people had to say. He seemed to have a real mission in life. He really, it's actually rather a, a QI thing, rather a book of generality thing, isn't it? He has this idea that we do not fulfill the potential of our people, that we don't give them a chance in some way. He doesn't quite know how to express this yet, but I think we might see great things of him. And he is very different to Tony Blair yeah. in the sense that he certainly is erudite. He is very, very learned, extraordinarily well-read. I think everybody accepts that he's, 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 you know, he's been a, a, a brilliant for whatever ten years Chancellor of the Exchequer, and he's, a, he's, a, he's, yeah, he's a, he's a serious and well-read man. Yeah, he's all about uh, sort of spin and presentation skills. Gordon Brown actually has a view, and he's going to take maybe a little bit of time to make up his mind. And I think he's going to be well. You can already see what he's doing with the British troops in Iraq. I mean, Tony Blair would never have dared do that with George W. Bush. I don't think. All right, so finally, at number five is our president, George Bush. That's got to be, he's got to be <laughs> ignorant, I'm afraid. I mean, there's just no... Uh, well, I mean, I, yeah, here's a thing that I heard when he was running for governorship before he was president. Uh, somebody told me that he's a very well-educated guy. It was it Yale or Harvard? I can't remember which. He did some competitive interview when he was standing for governor, and... The other guy was a down-home boy who just said, oh, heck, I don't know, uh, I'm nothing. And, and George Bush learned his lesson that never again was he going to... Uh, uh, to be caught out looking erudite. He's going to pretend to be ordinary, and that's his big trick. In fact, I, I read the other night on the Internet that 
George W. Bush's uh, favourite book, he said, was The Very Hungry Caterpillar. That was his <laughs> favourite book in the world, and he'd enjoyed it very much as a child. And it turned out that The Very Hungry Caterpillar was actually only published when George W. Bush was 20 years old. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but I think it's coming. I, I vote. I have to disagree with my colleague here. I think he's very, very clever indeed. Very cunning. Very erudite indeed. He's just playing a clever game. Okay. Right. Well, we can disagree on that one. <laughs> I think if you're going to, bottom line, if you're in that position, you, you deserve to get called ignorant, even if you're not. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. So what does the Grocatron tell us? If we... Oh, well, five out of five. I <laughs> have to say yes. <laughs> you say that to all the boys. <laughs> well, yeah. No prizes, unfortunately, but there you go. No negative scores, alas. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, Shaloy, Mr. Mitchison, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing our game and, of course, talking about the Book of General Ignorance. Thank, thank you very much. That's great. Bye-bye. Bye. For the shortest, in the fortest, in the sweetest self, fjords, fjords, little tiny inlets, inlets of water, in the water, sort of, the fjords. And Yoda, with this week's question of the week, mysterious and dangerous universes, but even more mysterious, the Fermion. Hmm. If you know or think you know, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't want anything. Hmm. But mysterious universe will be revealed. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact with us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.